Hello and welcome to episode 1280 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm doing okay. So we have one division series concluded. We have a few more still going, at least as we speak. Perhaps not as you listen. There is just no way around that. You and I were just talking about how we should schedule these things during the playoffs so as to avoid being outdated, but there's just really no way to do it. So we just kind of have to live with knowing that by the time you hear this, there may be more baseball, which doesn't mean that we can't talk about the baseball that has already happened. So let's talk about... (laughs) So the Brewers eliminated the Rockies. That's easy. That's something that will be evergreen, at least for a couple of days until people stop caring. And then the mm-hmm. Brewers have a new opponent. But I wanted to, did you, do you watch the game that they played on Sunday? Yeah. Uh, well, at least I had it on in the background while I was doing some book work. So yes. Yeah. Okay. So look, there's, there's a lot we could talk about with regard to the Brewers and the Rockies and, and we'll get to the, maybe the bigger stuff, but in the smaller stuff, Scott Oberg had a Bach. <laughs> And I wanted to talk about this specific kind of Bach a little bit. This is a well-known Bach. Anyone who's pitched is familiar with the Bach. But in the sixth inning, it was 2-0 Brewers. And the Brewers had runners on second and third. Curtis Granderson was batting with two ads against Scott Oberg, who was pretty good. And Scott Oberg was digging into the rubber. And for some reason, maybe he always does this. I didn't think to check or care. But he tried to flip the ball to his hand out of his glove. Uh And he dropped the ball. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and that was a balk. The Brewers <laughs> responded, and the umpire was like, yeah, that's, you're on the rubber. And then he dropped the ball. That is, by the rule book, that is a balk. A run mm-hmm. scored. Maybe related to that, maybe not related to that. Two pitches later, Scott Oberg threw a wild pitch that allowed another runner to score. And I don't know if Scott Oberg threw a wild pitch because at that point, he just didn't care anymore. He was just too upset and frustrated <laughs> with the moment. But the intent of the balk rule... I don't think this is a stretch. The intent of the mm-hmm. Bach rule is so the pitcher does not deceive the base runner. Now, as has been discussed a million times, the pitcher is still permitted to do any number of things that deliberately deceive the base runner. So <laughs> the Bach rule itself maybe shouldn't exist in any form. But certainly the dropping the ball Bach, we've seen this a few times. I think, isn't this how the, is this, I don't remember if this is what Dylan Flora did against the Mariners in August when the Dodgers lost in a walk-off buck. That's ages ago at this point but mm-hmm. Johnny Cueto had this happen to him in the wildcard game right several years ago when the, the Pirates crowd was on him and the ball slipped out of his glove and that was right. a block and everyone was like he's intimidated or he just dropped <laughs> the baseball but what mm-hmm. is it what's accomplished by that Bach call it doesn't deceive anyone you shouldn't do it I mean you look stupid let's be honest but <laughs> why not just call a dead ball and then everyone looks at the pitcher and be like hey look, that guy's that guy's stupid. What What is accomplished by this being a buck? Why did the Brewers get a run? Because Scott Oberg dropped a baseball and it rolled five feet away from his feet. I don't know. We talked about this not long ago, right? Or I talked about it on MLB Network. And I think there are certain types of box that you probably want to stay box because they actually could be deceptive or disruptive. I know that Bill James, for instance, has the extreme position that I think there should be no box because you just, if you deceive the base runner, then it's on the base runner that he shouldn't have been deceived. That, uh, you know, why do we make it easier for them? And I sort of understand that, but on the other hand, I I think there are certain types of box that it probably just makes the game better to prevent them. But this type of box, like just the the clear accident that absolutely no one is being deceived by, that it's just a, a lack of coordination, 
I don't think there's really any reason to penalize the pitcher other than just shaming him for not being able to complete the act of of throwing a ball or transferring the ball between his hands. But I can't imagine that you could do that in such a way that a base runner would be like, oh, he's he's going, he's throwing. I'm I'm gonna leave the base now because he just dropped the ball completely. So I don't really see the point either. Yeah, that it was just. And it, thankfully, I guess the Rockies didn't try to come back and then make this a moment that mattered because the Rockies were mm-hmm. terrible. They were one of the worst teams that's <laughs> ever played a playoff series, and they were now. When I, when I was watching the game on Sunday, it was like it was dark and cloudy and cold. In Colorado, and I don't want to pretend like I'm some sort of armchair psychiatrist, but boy, the Rockies' body language—they just looked like they didn't want to participate in the series at all. And uh, <laughs> thankfully, to a certain extent, they didn't participate in the series at all. The Brewers just kind of coasted. You could say that the Rockies retired from having played so much, but the Brewers also had to play an extra baseball game. So, whatever. Anyway, it was a—it was a silly balk. Not the first time we've seen that balk. I know that you did go on MLB Network and you participated in some entire segment Mm -hmm. Uh, so that was thankfully separate from this podcast we're not just going over old material but what are Mm -hmm. what were the what were the extreme cases where you did think uh, box are necessary and warranted I'm trying to think. I'm I'm trying to remember because uh, there are like 13 different things that can be a buck, I believe. And Sam did a kind of a taxonomy of bucks at Baseball Prospectus a few years ago and went through each kind or almost every kind and kind of classified whether it even made sense that it's a buck or whether that you can even tell that it's a buck. So there's the kind that is rarely identified as a buck, but probably should be according to the rule book so sam has this in his article the rule book wording is the pitcher while touching his plate that's the the pitching rubber makes any motion naturally associated with his pitch and fails to make such a delivery so this is kind of like when you do like a knee pop sort of you you just uh you spin and and throw to first sort of but like you kind of could be starting your motion before you do that and that is i think rarely called as sam described it and i think that's probably you could come up with cases where the buck should be called but isn't there are just as many of of those that i think are genuinely deceptive there's I think the the stopping on the way to the plate, having to pause and, and come to a complete stop, like at mm-hmm. a stop sign, that one I think is is probably important. The rule book says the pitcher following his stretch must A hold the ball in both hands in front of his body and B come to a complete stop. This must be enforced. Umpires should watch this closely. Pitchers are constantly attempting to beat the rule in their efforts to hold runners on bases, which is a a weird bit of language in the rule book that it's like someone who just hates tricky pitchers. They're always trying to get by this rule. And the rule book is telling umpires, watch out for this. So I can interrupt you right there. Yeah, actually, because I, I saw something this morning that I'd forgotten about. So uh, just cut from the, the Wikipedia page for box. The major league record for the most box in one game is held by Bob Shaw, who had five mm-hmm. box in a game on May 4th, 1963, while pitching for the Braves against the Cubs. Four of the five box came when the Cubs' Billy Williams was on base, one in the first inning, then three more in the third inning. In the latter frame, Shaw walked Williams and then proceeded to balk him to second, third, and home. Shaw's box were blamed on his difficulty adjusting to a then-new, quote, point of emphasis in the rules, 
Umpires were told to enforce a section of the Bach rule strictly that required the pitcher, when going from the stretch to the set position, to come to a complete stop with his hands together for one full mm. second before pitching. The rule had been virtually ignored before. Yeah, there's a, if you listen to this week's Infinite Inning podcast, Stephen Goldsman's show, he does a, a good story about how this became a, an issue with Dizzy Dean and Ford Frick because there was an earlier period where this was briefly enforced and Dizzy Dean really didn't like it and did sort of a, a protest. So uh, with a lot of the the Bach rules, it's like, you know, it can go unenforced for years and then suddenly someone decides, oh, this is in the rule book. We should actually pay attention to this and sends a memo around to the umpires and then suddenly it, it becomes a thing again, at least briefly until everyone stops paying attention again. And it's always sort of disruptive. But uh, another kind maybe is just the the kind of classic Andy Pettit type pickoff that is often not ruled a balk, but sometimes is. I mean, when you don't step toward the base that you're throwing to, that is, you know, I guess the, mm. the rule book says, at any time during the pitcher's preliminary movements and until his natural pitching motion commits him to the pitch, he may throw to any base provided he steps directly toward such base before making the throw. And obviously there are a lot of pitchers who do not step directly toward, say, first base when they are throwing to first base. And I don't know, you could say, well, the base runner should just uh, be adept enough to pick out the real ones from the fake ones. But that can be tough because, you know, I guess the extreme version of that, you could just do your regular pitching motion exactly and just like, you know, step toward home plate almost, but sideways throw to first. And, you know, that would be very deceptive. And if you're going on first movement, as a lot of runners do, and that first movement looks exactly the same as it does during the normal delivery, then you know, that's definitely deceptive and maybe in a bad way. Right. And I guess if you were a pitcher, you're a left-handed pitcher. This only works for left-handed pitchers. But if you did your yeah. your leg lift and then you – if you saw the runner going while you were in your delivery, then you could in theory just step anywhere and then throw to first without the block rule and then you would just have pickoffs at the wazoo. So now granted, there are far fewer stolen bases against lefties anyway because the lefty is looking right at you <laughs> the entire time. It's much, much more difficult to steal against them. So – yeah, you, I guess you your examples convince me in that you don't want to disincentivize the running game. The running game is fun, so you should have some protections in there. But the dropping the ball part of the Bach rule, it's not deceptive in any way. I guess it deceives people into thinking that you're a competent pitcher until you drop the ball, and then it yeah. is revealed that actually you were not. But if you are a runner, I, what does this look like from the side? You have a glove and you have a hand. And then a ball comes out of the glove, and then the pitcher suddenly has to respond to it frantically because the ball has escaped. But mm -hmm. if you drop the ball, the ball's not going to go far. So no runner is likely to try to advance, right, at that yeah. point? Because unless, like, you drop the ball and it hits the top of your cleat, then you make a <laughs> kicking motion at the same time. Like, that would be absurd. Mm -hmm. But realistically, ball's not going to go anywhere. It's going to go maybe 5 or 10 feet away. Not far enough for anyone to bother to try to advance. And... So it seems like it should just be a dead ball. Ball comes out of your glove. Umpire waves his hands to the side and says, dead ball. Everyone looks at you. You're dumb. Mm -hmm. Everyone goes back and, and the play resumes. So I don't, I, don't I, I get it. Like it's a rule. Every pitcher knows the rule. Uh, we've seen it with Cueto, saw it with Oberg, saw it with other pitchers. And so pitchers know they're not supposed to drop the ball. Just as a rule of thumb, if you are playing a sport that isn't basketball, don't drop the ball that you're in <laughs> possession of. And mm -hmm. if you are playing basketball, recover possession immediately. That's the point. This is dribbling. I'm talking about dribbling. 
Uh, do people dribble anymore, or is it all just passing and running? I don't know. I haven't watched basketball for a while, but yeah. In in this case, it's I know it's a rule in the rule book. Everybody knows it. I guess I just wonder why it's a rule in the rule book. I don't know what this saves, what this accomplishes. It seems well. Anyway, we've talked about this for ten minutes, so we can talk about something else now. <laughs> yeah. So right, the Rockies looked bad. I think we can all agree. I don't know. You know, I'm sure they they did want to be there. I'm sure they wanted to win the division more, but they got into the division series, and it, it's all the same once you get to that point. So I I think that you know we talked coming into the series about how it hurt them that they had their best two starters used in Game 163 and the Wild Card games, so they didn't get to use Marquez until Game Three, and they never got to use Freeland, and so. That is bad because they're a a strangely constructed team. It's a team with a a good starting rotation, but kind of a top-heavy starting rotation, and then a pretty good bullpen, particularly later in the year, and then about three good hitters, and, and that's it. And they didn't hit and you know it's not surprising like you look at it and you think well this is kind of what we were saying all year long even though the Rockies score runs typically they are not always a good offensive team it just looks like they are because of course field and this was not one of the better offensive Rockies teams and that showed here now it's three games and you know you can have a, a very good offensive team that doesn't hit in three games so it's not like oh yeah this is exactly what we thought the Rockies were and this is what they are and they showed us that in this series but it's kind of like that and they didn't get to use Freeland and the Brewers are I think a good team that uh, use the bullpen a lot in this series and that plays to their advantage yeah it's it's funny you can look at the Rockies and what really was the problem with them was that they didn't hit the ball at all they scored in one inning of the 28 innings that they played and like Senzatella is not Freeland or Marquez and Tyler Anderson is not Freeland or Marquez but combined those two starters allowed just three runs in 11 innings so they were fine but yeah the fact of the matter is that the the Rockies scored all of two runs they scored them both against Jeremy Jeffers to force extra innings in the first game that's the game that they lost it's a series you look at it and I think the week and the series in particular it went perfectly for the Brewers and I will explain why Right now, because this is how talking works. <laughs> the, the Brewers used Brandon Woodruff, Julius Chassin, and, and Wade Miley to start. And the Brewers threw 28 innings in the series and combined those starters, or in Woodruff's case, initial out-getters, whatever. I don't. <laughs> we'll work on this. They yeah. combined for 12.2 innings pitched, which is, as you'll recognize, less than half. Less than half of the innings that the Brewers threw in the series. Yep. And in all three games, they used... Corey Knabel, Jeremy Jeffress, Joachim Soria, and Josh Hader. Corbin Burns also pitched in two games. And if you go back to the the game 163 against the Cubs, they also used Soria, Knabel, and Hader in that game. So Soria, Knabel, and Hader have thrown in four consecutive games for the Brewers. And now that they, they swept the Rockies, they get to recover. They have ample downtime. So not only did the Brewers get to use their pitching staff exactly as they wanted to in, in the first series, but now they shouldn't have any sort of constraints moving forward into the NLCS, no matter who they face. And they get to do this again. So this is one of those things when you go into the playoffs, and I write a post every year where I try to rate the playoff teams based on their actual rosters. But what inevitably, inevitably trips me up when I do that is that we don't know 
how heavily the bullpens are going to be used. And in the Brewers' case, the bullpen was used for more than 50% of the innings, which is, I think, how mm-hmm. this team is constructed. They have such yep. a deep bullpen, and Corbin Burns is has really come on strong. He had a great series, even though he only threw four innings. Five strikeouts, no walks. He throws really hard. He's one of the Brewers' relievers who does that. So you look at this team, and and it's easy. You you look at the pitching staffs, I guess, Rockies, Brewers, and you think, well, the Rockies have the better rotation, and the rotations throw more innings. Therefore, the Rockies could have the better pitching staff, but they don't. And mm-hmm. it was demonstrated because the Brewers' bullpen is so deep. They really don't need even two turns through the lineup out of their starters. And so the fact that they were so good, so overwhelmingly dominant, 30 strikeouts and eight walks and 28 innings, only 14 hits and two runs allowed. And now they get all this downtime moving forward. This this could not this whole week could not have gone better for the Brewers, which maybe isn't a surprising thing when they haven't lost for like a half of a month. <laughs> yeah. So coming into Monday, we are at league wide counting all teams. 48.6% of innings this postseason have been pitched by relievers. I am sort of expecting that it will end up over 50, or at least I thought it would end up over 50 coming into this postseason, but even 48.6% would be a record higher than last year, which was a record. And as you noted, the Brewers, they got 12 and two-thirds innings from their starters and 15 and a third innings from their relievers, and really even some of their starter innings were kind of actually reliever innings. So Jay Jaffe pointed out at Fangraphs that they had the fewest innings pitched by their starting pitchers of any team that has ever won a division series. And that's uh, how they're going to do it. That's how they're constructed to have to do it. And, you know, it worked perfectly fine in the series. And so it's unfortunate for the Rockies that they are gone so soon. But, you know, if you believe in regular season performance determining postseason performance, then this is just in the sense that the Rockies were the team with the lowest run differential in the majors that was in positive territory. So no other team had a positive run differential, but a lower positive run differential. So the the Diamondbacks had a higher one. The Cardinals had a higher one. The Rays had a higher one. The Nationals had a higher one. All those teams, you could make a pretty good case, were actually better than the Rockies and did not end up in the playoffs. So Rockies had been outscored for most of the season just up until their really good run at the end that got them here. So, you know, it's it's kind of weird that they were here at all. <laughs> so that probably doesn't make Rockies fans feel any better. But that is kind of, you know, they were sort of the team that we thought they were in this series. Yeah, pretty clearly they were the weak link of the teams that made it into series play, and mm-hmm. now they are gone. That is, I mean, to whatever extent that we want the playoffs to reward the better teams, that makes sense. As you said, mm-hmm. that the Rockies are gone. Like they would have been the real underdog coming in. Something I didn't realize as it was happening, but maybe maybe you realize this. Christian Yelich in the series, he uh, he had eight at bats. And he had mm-hmm. six walks and yeah. zero strikeouts. So Christian Yelich has continued his Bonzian stretch. He's yep. into his third consecutive. I mean, this has been going on since, what, the All-Star break, essentially. Mm-hmm. So we're at like three solid months of seeing Barry Bonds, kind <laughs> of. Like, yeah. it's a little, it's a bit of a different process, but not really. Not in terms of the, the outcomes. So I don't know how, how much more Bonds Yelich has in him, but... Maybe, I don't know. It, it is a coincidence that Yelich was coached by Barry Bonds in Miami, but maybe 
Maybe Bonds like bit him in the neck one day and it just took a while to infect or I don't know, make better. I don't know what a is it like a, a virus? You know these things better than I do, but would you would you say that you're infected by a superpower? Hmm. It's kind of a philosophical question, I guess. It, if you saw Venom this weekend, I guess in Venom it, it does seem like sort of an infection. It's a symbiote, but in most cases, I don't know, I guess it changes your, your DNA. So at that point, probably not an actual infection anymore. It, yeah. it varies case by case basis. But uh, Jay also had a stat that the Rockies had the second fewest total bases ever produced in a division series. They had 18 total bases in this series, and the Rangers had 16 in losing to the 98 Yankees. So whatever way you use to, to slice it and rank their offensive performance, it was lousy. And I'm kind of sorry that Kyle Freeland didn't get another chance to pitch in the series just because he's been so impressive and obviously he's living his childhood dream with his childhood team and you kind of got the sense from his short rest start that he could just pitch every day and be fine. (laughs) I'm sure that's not (laughs) the case, but he looked like that. So, you know, coming into game three, it seemed like, yeah, the Rockies are down 0-2, but they have a pretty big starting pitcher advantage in games three and in a hypothetical game four. So it wasn't unrealistic to think that they could get back in the series, but you have to hit to do that. And they did not. You mentioned, and Jay mentioned the 1998 Rangers. Let's just, just for a moment, the Texas Rangers in 1998, they made the ALDS. Remember, there was no wild card round at that point. So they made the ALDS. They faced the Yankees. They were scored nine to one and they were swept. They lost two to nothing, three to one, and then four to nothing. The next year, they get all the way back to the ALDS. They face the Yankees, and they're outscored 14 to 1, and they're swept in three yeah. games. They lost eight to nothing, three to one, and three to nothing. I can't imagine how it feels to make the playoffs two years in a row, see the same opponent, have the same outcome, and score a total of two runs in <laughs> six games. The teams, I looked at every series ever completed, and the teams with the fewest runs scored in a completed series. It's a tie between the 1998 Texas Rangers and the 1999 Texas Rangers, both in the (laughs) LDS, both against the Yankees, both having scored one run. The Braves had a a chance to – had the Braves been shut out on Sunday by the Dodgers, then they would have been the worst. They would have scored a total of zero runs with three consecutive shutouts. But, of course, they did not get shut out in large part thanks to Ronald Acuna and also Sean Newcomb. But I don't know how much we should talk about that since there will have been another game by the time this Mm -hmm. podcast goes up. But I don't know. Yeah. What do you want to say? Well, Twins fans probably know the feeling of being shut down by the Yankees in the <laughs> postseason, too. So it happens. But I was going to say that speaking of not hitting, we could talk about the Cleveland Indians in the same context because mm-hmm. they are not hitting either, although they are facing the Houston Astros. And a lot of teams don't hit when they face the Astros. So. <laughs> It's, uh, I guess, not quite as glaring, and again, there will have been another game by the time you hear this. Perhaps they will have hit, but when you're going up against Verlander and Cole and maybe the best bullpen in this playoff field, not even counting the really good relievers they left off the roster— that is, I guess, somewhat more explicable or excusable. Right. It's different when you're talking about the Brewers and the Rockies because that series is is complete. Now, maybe the Astros-Indian series will be complete by the time this podcast goes up, but I'm more forgiving with two games, and then when there's three and the series is over, it's it's more official. But yeah, the, the Astros pitching staff is just an absurdity, right? I mean, we're, we're all in the mm-hmm. 
same page and Francisco Lindor was able to hit a home run and whatnot but there's not there's not a weak link like maybe maybe Tony Sipp is like the weak link of the Astros pitching staff but he's only there to face like one or two guys realistically Mm -hmm. and you you look at what the Astros have been able to do the Indians don't strike out as a team and like the the way that the lineup begins with with Brantley Lindor and Ramirez these are not strikeout prone players but the Indians have already struck out 24 times, 60 at-bats against the Astros with only four walks. Again, this is all through two games, so if, if the Indians erupt in Game 3, so be it. It's not our fault. It's the Indians' fault or Dallas Keuchel's fault. But the, the mm-hmm. Astros' pitching staff is just so good. Cole, Garrett Cole, uh, I'm, I can't I can't spoil anything being a, a Cy Young voter, but I would just like to bring everyone's attention Back to Garrett Cole because Blake Snell got so much hype down the stretch because of his crazy second half. But mm-hmm. Garrett Cole was amazing all season, which yeah. Blake Snell uh, wasn't. Justin Verlander also was amazing all season. Ryan Presley was not, but he was very good, and especially down the stretch. You look at the pitchers the Astros have used through two games. Cole, seven innings. Verlander, five and a third innings. Presley, two and a third innings. Osuna, two and a third innings. And McCullers, one inning. I know that the Brewers have a really, really good bullpen, but then the Astros have, like, the Brewers' bullpen, but also if the bullpen were a rotation, too. <laughs> yeah. So, like, there, this this might be—we'll see how it plays out because the Indians have had some really great staffs, but— this is a contender for the the Astros pitching staff is a contender for the best ever pitching staff I think that has made the playoffs and been constructed for the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And if somebody gets hurt, they have depth to make up for it, which makes it all the more absurd. Now, like the Indians, you look at them and you've got Kluber, Carrasco. I don't know what they're doing with Trevor Bauer right now because he's mm-hmm. pitched twice out of the bullpen, even though he was supposed to be in the rotation. Yeah. And, Clevenger's in there, and like Andrew Miller hasn't looked so healthy, but when he's going well, he's great, and Brad Hand, and et cetera. You can see there are elements of a really, really good pitching staff here, and the Indians have had a great postseason pitching staff before, but the Astros' postseason pitching staff is is almost genuinely un- unbelievable. It's going to be incredibly difficult for the Indians to have a chance in the series. Yeah, I mean, watching them in the first couple of games, it, it just seems like, oh, yeah, this team's going to win the World Series again because they just look that dominant. But of course, next series rolls around or even next game rolls around and they might not look that way anymore. But it is a really good team. I mean, I think that coming into the playoffs, we thought they were the best team, even though they did not have the most regular season wins. They're just so good in every area, and they're going to be really tough to beat. It's uh, it's almost, I mean, it's so hard to repeat as a champion in today's baseball. Like Craig Edwards wrote at Fangraphs when the Cubs lost, that it's okay that they're not a dynasty, that they don't win every year because baseball is not set up to enable dynasties anymore. You know, it's really hard to get through the playoffs when you have all these different rounds and all those small sample variants and even if you have the best team there's a really good chance that you're not going to win it's different from when you just had to build the best regular season team and then win one seven game series that was hard but more doable than it is today there's just a an extra few layers of randomness added in there so if we actually do get repeat champions that's something that we haven't seen in a while right since the Yankees so I think that would be quite an accomplishment and we'll see if the Astros get there but right now they look very scary 
if you were to put yourself in the uh, in the position of a player, and let's say, okay, so you're an Astros player and it's 2018, and you just won the World Series. Are you more motivated to try to win the World Series after you've won the first one or after you've won two in a row? Huh, I, I don't know. I mean, it seems like the first one is special, but if you had a chance at being a dynasty, is is three what you need? I mean, it, it's almost like two is like the, the qualifier for a dynasty at this point just because it's so hard. I mean, you had the Giants win three, but not in consecutive years. So I don't know whether you can count that or not. And in the years that they won, they often weren't even the best team, at least during the regular season. So I don't know if that counts as one. I, I would think that... Probably the first time. I mean, after you've won two in a row, it's got to seem almost routine, right? I, nothing is as enjoyable the third time you do it as the first time, or at least as, as memorable and special, probably. So I, I think the first time, probably. So on the one hand, the Han Dynasty lasted 426 <laughs> years, but the Xin Dynasty only lasted 15 years. So mm. maybe you only need... 15 <laughs> row yeah. so i don't know we could we could argue whether it's you have to go for centuries at a time or if just more a decade and a half is is enough but as an astro i wonder if the astros won 15 consecutive world series who would be on all 15 and i will uh i'll begin with alex bregman as a candidate <laughs> Mm-hmm. Maybe Jose Altuve in, in in some role. I don't know. We'll talk about this in, I guess, thirteen <laughs> years and see where where we are. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what would count as a baseball dynasty. Two two in a row would be incredibly uh, impressive. But I guess, as you were saying, realistically, the National League and the American League are, are quite different. The National League was better than the American League this year overall because mm-hmm. everything counts. But the American League, I think, not secretly, the American League was more top heavy. The best teams mm-hmm. are just better the the best teams in the american league outplayed the national league and interleague play they are great i think maybe the dodgers match up but outside of that like the the astros indians red sox and yankees and dodgers are probably the five best teams in baseball and mm-hmm. four of those are in the american league eliminating two of one another and so it's going to be I don't know if the Dodgers are going to make the World Series. We'll see if it gets that far. But in a sense, the World Series has the potential to be like a let-up for whoever advances out of the American League. Not to say that the team is definitely going to win, but as good as the Astros are, like just imagine, if you will, uh, another ALCS between the Astros and the Yankees. And it's great. There's There's not a weakness in the bunch, except, I don't know, maybe like the Yankees' fourth starter, I guess. If Jay Happ goes out there, you can be like, this is the game where the Astros have to pounce. But otherwise, like last year's ALCS was great, and there's no reason why this one would be any worse. Not to take anything away from the Red Sox, but I think the Yankees are better. There's a lot of good players in the playoffs is is the point. And for <laughs> all the talk we've already dedicated to the Brewers in the National League, the American League is it's it's better. The teams mm-hmm. playing are better. Yeah. Well, so as we were just talking about, you can look utterly dominant for a few games and then not in the next game or the next series. And that's kind of what happened with the Dodgers and the Braves in game three. The Dodgers were incredible. They were just steamrolling over the Braves in the first couple games. And the Braves were seemingly just chasing everything like the Dodgers are this ultra disciplined offensive team and the Braves not so much and 
They were just sort of made to look silly by Clayton Kershaw on Friday, who is a very different pitcher than he used to be, and and we can talk about that briefly. But in Game 3, of course, the Braves win to survive and extend the series 6-5. At times, it looked like the Dodgers were going to come back and take it, but ultimately, the Freddie Freeman solo shot proved the difference. But really, the big blow was Ronald Acuna's Grand Slam, which I don't want to asterisk the the Grand Slam because it was Do it. Imp- impressive and Acuna is amazing and he's the youngest player to have a Grand Slam in the playoffs ever, right? Beating Mickey Mantle in that category. But man, I don't know what happened to Walker <laughs> Bueller in that inning. What was it? The second inning? And he walked Sean Newcomb, of all people, candidate for the worst hitting pitcher of many, many terrible hitting pitchers, walked him on four pitches, just seemingly lost the strike zone, and went 3-0 on Acuna. And then Acuna just stood up. He was taking all the way. He didn't even get into his crouch. And... Maybe partly because he wasn't in his crouch, but also seemingly just because the umpire felt sorry for him, or at least it certainly seemed that way. Like Gary Cedarstrom was the home plate ump, and it was like bordering on uncomfortable. It was like, you know, it wasn't like ankyl type wildness, like he wasn't, you know, throwing the ball to the backstop or anything, but. Anytime you see a pitcher, particularly a young pitcher in the playoffs, just seemingly unnerved, and we can't tell what was going on in Walker Bueller's head. All we can tell is just what is on his face and what happens to his pitches, but looked like he just lost the strike zone. It was just a, a bout of wildness at a terrible time to have one. And so 3-0, we know that historically speaking, the strike zone on 3-0 is much bigger than the strike zone on other counts. And you can say that that's bad and it's dumb and the zone should be the zone and it should never change. But we know that it always does and that umpires do kind of act as a corrective. Like they kind of keep the party that's down in the plate appearance up just by changing the strike zone. So if it's 0-2, then the strike zone is relatively tiny. And if it's 3-0, the strike zone is relatively huge. And I think that is probably frustrating at times, except that pitchers know it's the case and hitters know it's the case. And it's not really a surprise. So you can plan for it and exploit it if you're smart. And I think it probably makes plate appearances more competitive because as much as we look at the numbers uh, like league-wide on O2 and say that once you're down O2, you're in big trouble, you're probably not going to get on base, it would be even more drastic if umpires did not do what they did. If the zone were the same on O2 as it is on OO, then numbers with O2, I mean, it would be like you could just give up on a lot of plate appearances once it got to that point. Anyway, that's a digression, but it sure as heck seemed like that 3-0 pitch was just kind of a gift by Cedarstrom, just a, a pure pity strike. And I looked up the numbers in the Baseball Prospectus database, which includes called strike probabilities for every pitch thrown, and it's based on the location and the pitch type and just, you know, where the pitch is historically have pitches there like that been called strikes. And the called strike probability of this one, the chances that this would be called a strike, 1.8%. So <laughs> fewer than two out of every hundred pitches like this 
gets called a strike. So maybe it was just a, a random thing that would have happened, happens from time to time, but sure seemed like the, the context of the situation dictated that call. And I guess Sederstrom was trying to help Bueller, but ultimately he probably would have helped him more to call that a ball and walk Acuna and force a run-in with the bases loaded than to then have Bueller come back with a meatball on 3-1 and have Acuna destroy it. Yeah, this was very nearly uh, something that was going to be an article, and now at this point it just doesn't matter anymore that much. But I'm looking at com- uh, comparable video right now because the the 2-0 pitch to Acuna was a high fastball, 96 miles per hour. The 3-0 pitch was a high fastball, 98 miles per hour. And I'm looking at just screenshots back to back to back, and they were maybe like one inch apart, maybe two inches. I'm not looking at the actual data, but like the second pitch was maybe a little bit lower, but there's a, there's a body language component here. Maybe also at the, uh, yeah, at the two O pitch, Akuni went into a bit of a crouch to make the pitch look higher. And the three O pitch, Akuni just stood up and backed mm-hmm. away as the pitch was being delivered. And, and you never know in a case like this, whether it's because it's the three O zone that Cedarstrom expanded or whether it's because he just didn't approve of Ronald Acuna mm-hmm. assuming the walk. Now, you can see it's hard. This is a, kind of a bit of a Zapruder thing. It You can't fault, as an umpire, I don't think you can't, and I don't think Cedarstrom did fault Acuna for backing away, just taking all the way. Batters do that all the time. Perfectly fine to take all the way. But then it's at, Acuna started to walk. This is the 3-up pitch. Acuna started to walk to first base, and then Cedarstrom signaled the strike. And Acuna didn't like that very much. So it's hard to tell how much of this was Acuna's bad body language, assuming the walk, which no umpire likes. There's Acuna standing up as the pitch is on the way, which an umpire could kind of rightfully interpret as, well, you just made your zone bigger because look at where your belt is. And that's kind of what the rule is. And then there's the the 3-0 and pitch aspect. So regardless, Acuna, uh, it was a call that... Just about it. I can't say it cost the Braves a run because Acuna still had a three and one count, so it cost them a clear fraction of a run. Right? It was. I I don't know how to run the math here, but it was clearly an important call. But then the then the grand slam. So it didn't really matter. Like literally the next pitch, there was a it was a grand slam. But even when that happened, the Braves pitching staff is talented. In that all pitching staffs are talented, but. The Dodgers lineup is unbelievably good. And even when th- with the Braves up 5 nothing, I, I was thinking like this, there's a long way for this game to go. And there, there were multiple points along the way where I thought, well, now this game is, the Dodgers are going to win this game. And mm-hmm. Max Muncy at the tying home run in the top of the fifth, make it 5-5. Five, five and then in the top of the sixth, Matt Kemp led off with a ground rule double, leading off the top of the sixth. 5-5 game. That's when I went downstairs to have some dinner, and I just assumed, well, the Dodgers are going to now win this game. So mm-hmm. Kemp doubled. He ultimately did not score. Uh, Chris Taylor grounded out in the top of the sixth with the bases loaded to end that inning. He grounded out in a 2-1 and one count. And leading off the bottom of the sixth, Freddie Freeman hit a home run, but and then in the in the top of the eighth, A.J. Minter got into a whole bunch of trouble, but he got Yasiel Puig grand out with two on and two out. But then in the top of the ninth, I don't... Arotis Vizcaino had a very bipolar inning, 
the Braves were winning 6-5 at this point, and then Vizcaino came in, and Jock Peterson worked a tremendous at bat and then ripped a single off the wall, one of those almost double kind of singles, hit the ball, I think, 111 miles per hour. And then Erodis Vizcaino walked Justin Turner, and it fell behind Max Muncy 3-0. and And I don't have, as you and I have talked about before, we wish we had, like, pitch count win expectancies, which we yeah. don't, but... Yeah. When you're behind someone as good as Max Muncie, 3-0 and with two on and nobody out at the top of the ninth of a one-run game, you are effed as a, <laughs> as a closer. But Vizcaino, to his credit, was able to work back, and he struck out Max Muncie, then he struck out Manny Machado, then he struck out Brian Dozer, and the, the inning just flipped immediately. And of course, mm-hmm. not, you know, the, the pitch that put away Manny Machado was also a wild pitch, and so two runners moved into scoring position with Brian Dozer at the plate. So it got... It got interesting. I can't tell how impressed I am by the ninth. It's clearly I'm impressed by the way that the ninth inning played out. But also, Erodus Vizcano got into a mess of his own making. So it's one of those, I don't know, like Fernando Rodney saves in a way where you think like you did really good to clean up your own mess. But (laughs) yeah, I do. I like a. The, the strikeout pitch, and if you didn't see it, or if this is a distant memory now because the Dodgers and Braves have played again in the time since, it could be a distant memory. But the pitch that Machado struck out on was like way—it was a breaking ball way out of the zone. Horrible-looking chase if you just look at it as a screenshot. But previous to that, the first two pitches of the at-bat were like perfect low away. I think it was like 98-mile-per-hour fastballs or something, just absolutely perfect fastballs. And then— when Vizcaner threw that that two strike breaking ball that was probably like two feet out of the zone, it's a, it's a, a testament to how good stuff is and how similar pitches look, because it, Machado's chase swing is something that looks unforgivable. But then if you put yourself in his place, you've got what two tenths of a second to try to figure out if you're seeing a fastball or a breaking ball, and Vizcaino had already set Machado up to mm-hmm. look at a low away fastball that was perfect and 98 miles per hour. So I don't know. It was really good pitching right after it was really tense, bad, ineffective pitching. So I don't mm-hmm. know how Vizcaino was able to like flip the switch between the 3-0 pitch and then the next one. But really, really fun inning, really fun game. I'm glad it wasn't on the, another sweep, even though it would have meant that there was no baseball on Wednesday, which I wouldn't have minded, but that's fine. That's just a <laughs> professional complaint, but... Three hours, 36 minutes, but it ended, it was a it was a really fun game. There haven't been, to me, I don't think that there have been a lot of, like, particularly fun playoff games yet. And this mm-hmm. is, this is I maybe the one that I'm going to remember for, for a while. And this kind of made it feel more like it's the playoffs now. Yeah, I agree. And now the Braves will have to face Dick Mountain to survive. And I guess... I wanted to say about Kershaw because he looked so good on Friday. I mean, he went eight innings. He allowed two hits, no walks. He threw 85 pitches, so obviously extremely efficient, and 63 of them were strikes, which is a really great ratio. He only had three strikeouts, of course, and so people were saying, "What? Well, you know, how did he only have three strikeouts? Was this actually a good game if you only have three strikeouts in eight innings? And obviously, over the course of a full season, it would be difficult to be good with that sort of ratio in today's game. But I don't know. I mean, he seemed like he was just inducing weak and frequent contact from 
the hitters here who, as mentioned, were aggressive and were chasing and he was just moving pitches around and changing speeds and all the things that you say about pitchers when they are not flamethrowers, which Kershaw is not anymore. And so he's completely adjusted how he is pitched. You know, I even when I wrote about him early this season, he had started throwing fewer fastballs, fewer four-seamers because he just doesn't throw his fastball as hard anymore. And he really went all in on that fastball-averse approach down the stretch with some success. He just throws a ton of sliders now. In that start, he threw 32 four-seamers, according to Brooks Baseball, and 38 sliders. So he now throws, he's like almost Tanaka-esque in his four-seamer avoidance, and he threw 14 curves. So he's probably just not going to get as many strikeouts, and he didn't get as many strikeouts this season because he doesn't have that blistering fastball anymore, and he's throwing a lot of the same pitches a lot of the time, but he seems to be successful with this approach anyway, and hopefully he's entered a a period of his career here where he can sustain the success for a while, even without the velocity, just by, you know, as the cliche goes, being a a pitcher, not a thrower. I mean, he was always a pitcher and a thrower, I think, which is why he's like the best. But (laughs) even if he has just one of those abilities now, he's still pretty good. And, you know, he's got to strike out more than three batters every eight innings he pitches, I think, if he wants to continue to be a great pitcher. But in this game, it just looked like more of an example of the Braves beating themselves or being beaten by Kershaw in a way other than just strictly missing bats. Right. And if you if you look at Kershaw during the year, just as a, a fun little demonstration, on the first pitch of any given plate appearance, he threw his fastball about two-thirds of the time. And against the Braves, he threw it about one-third of the time. Almost half uh-huh. of his first pitches were, were sliders. So just fun little evidence. It's always interesting to look at single playoff games and see what adjustments are, are being made for an opponent because – if you are if you're the Dodgers, if you're any playoff team, you just have a little extra time to plan for what you're going to do in a given game versus uh, what you do in the regular season when things are just always on the move. So Kershaw was doing something a little different. He never really threw that many sliders uh, on the first pitch during the season, but something that he did. And his stuff his stuff is uh, is just still so good that I think in any individual game you can understand that you. You have hitters who are swinging defensively, and you are able to generate soft contact. And I think it's a, it's an easy thing to buy for a start at a time or a few starts at a time. The reason it's a hard thing to buy for an entire full season at a time is because we just don't have that much evidence that it's true. But if we did have evidence of being able to generate soft contact, Clayton Kershaw has actually always been one of them. He's always yeah. generated results that suggest that he gets less than perfect contact. And it's, I think one of the things that makes it so hard to understand why soft contact generation isn't a sustainable skill is because it seems like it, it should be. You'd think that mm-hmm. if you have pitchers who have particular command or particular stuff, then you'd think that there would be more evidence than there is. But to Kershaw's credit, he is one of the people who has always beaten his peripherals. So even if he did suffer from a strikeout decline, he still looks like he would be really, really good. And so I guess we can come back to the conversation of does he opt out? Is it mm. going to come down to this month? He's probably, yeah, I guess, right. I don't know if he's going to pitch again. The Braves could suit the rest of the series. But even there, Kershaw would 
pitch in yeah. game five. So we have not seen the last of Clayton Kershaw, presumably in 2018. But this is going to be one of the questions that underlies everything. I mean, he'll probably still return to the Dodgers no matter what. But I don't know. You are looking at a guy who clearly isn't what he was, but he is able to demonstrate that he's still so good. So I, don't I still don't have an answer, but I'm, I have clearly gone from he is definitely not opting out to I can actually start to see it again. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's fun. It's fun to be able to put to rest the Clayton Kershaw playoff narrative. But I guess yeah. uh, David Price is, is picking it up where Kershaw left <laughs> off. Yeah, well, about that, I, we should transition to to that series. But I have a, a listener email that is relevant here. So James says, I just watched David Price get pulled in the second inning of his most recent rough playoff start, and it got me thinking, which pitcher has the biggest gap between his regular season and postseason ERAs? Somehow this is the hardest thing to find of all time. In fact, even finding the highest postseason ERAs, which I could then just compare by hand, is impossible, at least to my best hour-long research. Do you guys know how to find these numbers? I'm honestly curious if anyone has as poor a split as Price, at least in as many innings, because I kind of don't think there is anyone else out there like him. And James is right. We've talked about this before, I think. Postseason stats, like as far as most stat sites are concerned, and you can lump fan graphs in here if you want, just like don't exist. It's like it's so hard to – I mean we have so many incredibly detailed numbers on everything now down to the batted ball. But if you just want to find out like – how good a pitcher's been in the postseason. I mean, you can look up his postseason record, but it's really hard to do, like, complicated queries with postseason information just because, you know, historically, like, we look at regular season stats and postseason stats are sort of unofficial in a sense. I mean, they they have a lot of impact on certain pitchers' reputations, which is the funny thing, like, how you perform in October, I mean, when you think of certain guys, it's like the first thing you think about them is, oh, he's an incredible playoff pitcher, or he was a terrible playoff pitcher, and yet the stats themselves are hard to find, which... I guess makes sense historically because there didn't used to be as many playoff stats. There was only one playoff series for most of baseball history, and the Yankees were in it every year. So you didn't really have to look at at postseason stats as much. Now you kind of do. But anyway, my solution when I can't find something, as always, is to ask Dan Hirsch for it because he has access to the baseball reference database, and he was able to look this up easily, or I assume it was easy. I shouldn't assume probably but he sent it to me quickly and he sent me a list of just every player's regular season stats and postseason stats for players who pitched in the postseason but I limited it to 75 innings which just so happens to be exactly David Price's innings count in the postseason now 75 so there have been 53 pitchers to date I believe who have thrown at least 75 innings in the playoffs obviously skewed toward recent years and Yankees who were in the playoffs every year. But the biggest differentials in that wrong direction, number one, David Price, who has a postseason ERA now of 5.28 and a regular season ERA of 3.25. That is a 2.03 run difference. Number two, 
Clayton Kershaw. What do you know? 130 innings in the postseason. That is a 4.08 ERA in the postseason, which is actually 1.69 worse than his 2.39 regular season. So they are the only two guys in playoff history with this many innings who have been a run worse in the playoffs than they were in the regular season, which kind of tells you that's why we've been talking about David Price and Clayton Kershaw in the playoffs for seemingly forever now. It's because they really are outliers in the sense, which, you know, we can continue to argue year after year about whether this means anything. And it seems like Kershaw is now changing the narrative to the point where I think he's had enough good playoff starts lately that he's not being tagged with this so much, but poor Price is not. And just in terms of pure results and earned runs allowed, there is a reason why those two guys get so much scrutiny. And I'll just note, this is kind of interesting, there are eight pitchers in this many innings who have an ERA at least half a run worse in the postseason But there are 22 pitchers who have an ERA at least half a run better than their regular season ERA in the playoffs, which you might think is weird because, like, A, yeah, the, the weather is colder and maybe that suppresses run scoring, but the opponents are better. So you would think that on the whole pitchers would be a little worse in the playoffs. So it sounds sort of strange that there would be 22 guys who were that much better in the postseason and only eight who are that much worse. But that is probably just a, a selective sample there in that if you are very bad in the playoffs, you A, don't get postseason starts and B, your team probably just gets eliminated and you don't have the chance to accrue 75 playoff innings. So it's just skewed in that way. But but that's why it's it looks like that. But it goes Price, Kershaw, and then the other guys with half a run worse ERAs in the playoffs. Kevin Brown, Al Leiter, Don Gullett, Roger Clemens, Pedro Martinez, and Max Scherzer. And then the the bottom of the list or the the best part of the list, guys who've been better in the playoffs ERA-wise, Wait Hoyt is at the top, 1.76 runs better. And then you get Orlando Hernandez, El Duque, Mariano Rivera, Steve Avery, Kurt Schilling, Dave Stewart, Red Ruffing, Christy Mathewson, Art Neff, Bob Gibson, Cliff Lee, John Lester, David Wells, Madison Baumgartner. I could go on, but I won't. <laughs> so uh, one thing, let's just see if I can run some math here. So uh, El Duque Hernandez, for example, has a uh, career postseason ERA of 2.55. That's uh, that's very good. His career regular season ERA is 4.13. But of course, he was he threw almost all of his postseason innings between 1998 and 2002 with the Yankees, during which his regular season ERA was actually well actually almost the same as his career ERA so that was a bad example to bring up but I wonder (laughs) I wonder if in a case like this one of the potential small sources of of bias I don't think that you said that these were when you don't make the postseason in every season that you pitch in the regular season of course and so one of the potential pitfalls here is that you could have your regular season numbers based on seasons in which you didn't make the playoffs and maybe some of those seasons are going to be worse and so if you have guys who have a better ERA in the playoffs. Well, maybe they only pitched in the playoffs in the seasons in which they were better pitchers. But anyway, this is all theoretical. I haven't tested it, nor do I care to test it. With someone like David Price, what's interesting is it's really easy to be analytically dismissive of the playoff narrative. And in Price's case, here's why. In the playoffs, compared to what he's been during the regular season, his strikeout rate is almost exactly the same. His walk rate is almost exactly 
the same. And that's all you need to know. If you look at Mariano Rivera, for example, his postseason career versus regular season career, his strikeout and walk numbers did almost exactly the same thing, except that Mm -hmm. in the playoffs, Mariano Rivera was not easy to make good contacts against, and David Price has apparently been much easier to make good contact against for reasons I can't explain, but David Price's regular season career BABIP is 287. His career postseason BABIP is 288, which is Hmm. interesting. So what this really almost all comes down to is that in the regular season, David Price has allowed basically one, he's he's allowed 0.9 home runs per nine innings. And in the playoffs, that's almost doubled. And so when you allow home runs, there's nothing worse for a pitcher to do than allow home runs. But you look at Bryce, and in the playoffs, he's thrown those 75 total innings with the, the bad ERA and a bunch of home runs. And if David Price just did this in the first half of a season, we would look and say, well, it looks like the most of his numbers are normal. And he's just, this is all based on like the flukiest numbers, like the, the noisiest numbers that we have. So when someone's home run rate is out of control, we generally assume, well, that's probably nothing. So if David Price were to be given another 75 innings, based on all the analytical principles that I've ever been taught... I would assume, well, he's going to be good. He's going to be David Price. Where this gets interesting is you wonder, now, to a certain extent, David Price pitching in relief last year in the ALDS. I know the Red Sox lost, but Price threw six and two-thirds shutout innings of relief over Mm -hmm. a couple of appearances. He was quite good. He had six strikeouts. He just looked like a good pitcher, like David Price is supposed to look, except out of the bullpen, like the first year he ever (laughs) made the playoffs. But you wonder, (laughs) at a certain point, if the conversation gets so, I don't know, omnipresent and just negative that it, yeah, I could see how a narrative could start to almost become real as it pervades mm-hmm. David Price's brain. Like now, there's the, he, every single time he takes the man out of the playoffs, if he ever gets the opportunity again, this is all I was going to talk about until he does something great. And then realistically, he'll need to do it a few times until it's uh, until it's killed and people move on to whoever is, is next in line. But uh, not to suggest that David Price is especially vulnerable to what would essentially amount to like peer pressure. But I do wonder if these things can become self-fulfilling because as uh, even if you are able to identify like, oh, I've just had bad luck and I know that I'm better than this it's likely to now be in the back of his head more than ever because when you go an inning and two-thirds and you get booed off the mound against the Yankees at home in the ALDS that's the kind it doesn't matter how unlucky you might have been in the start maybe Price's stuff was fine but that's the kind of thing that you would think would have to linger and for Price he knows his team hasn't won the games he started in the playoffs he he knows that Mm -hmm. full well so I am forever on the player side of these conversations because I think it's just cruel and unfair to see if this guy can't perform in the clutch. David Price can perform in the clutch. Mm -hmm. His very first year as a rookie, he performed in the clutch with the Rays. But Mm -hmm. that being said, there is no ignoring the results. And I think that even though it is somewhat cruel to just pick on David Price, I don't think that it's an uninteresting conversation, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has to be demoralizing just to get booed off the mound after you've been your team's 
best pitcher, certainly in the second half of the season. I don't want to say that they're there because of David Price, because they won so many games that he probably could have just disappeared and they would have made the playoffs anyway, but he was consistent and good, and all of that is just wiped away by one lousy playoff start, which is just the unfortunate reality of how players are perceived. Those games are important, and they're what fans remember. And if you have this reputation and another start confirms the reputation, then it's going to lead to booze. And as you said, he has made big starts in his career. So it's hard to say that like he's a choker and he can't perform under pressure because he has. And Joe Sheehan just wrote about this kind of the, the history of Price in big games. I mean, you can go back to his college career and he won big games in must-win situations. And then, as you mentioned, when he came up in 2007, just after being drafted, he was really good out of the bullpen for the Rays. And then in, what was it, 2013, he pitched the the tiebreaker against the Rangers and he pitched a complete game to get the race into the playoffs that year. That was a big start. That doesn't count as a playoff start, but it was a must win. It might as well have been a playoff start and he was great. And then as you also alluded to, there was last year in the ALDS when the Red Sox were down to nothing to the Astros and Doug Fister got knocked out and Then Price came in and threw four shutout innings and the Red Sox won. So, you know, it's like, is it a selective thing where he supposedly experiences this debilitating pressure, but then the next time doesn't? I don't know. Or is it just that, I mean, it's not a a tiny sample, but it's a small sample compared to his overall record. And he has inarguably been worse and less successful and... His teams are 0-10 in the playoffs in games that he's started. That is, <laughs> as Joe Girardi used to say, it's not what you want. Granted, as Joe Sheehan pointed out, Price's teams have scored a total of 21 runs in those 10 games. So that is DeGromian run support. But I think that it's kind of a, a complicated legacy and you kind of just root for the player, you know, aside from rooting for any particular team, you root for the player to shed this label because you don't want him to have to spend the rest of his life as this guy who's perceived as someone who couldn't perform in the postseason when he did so many other things well. And there are these counterexamples. So still hoping he gets out from under this. But at this point in his career, he's already kind of dug a, a deep hole for himself here. I can't Im- imagine. <laughs> David Price is not going to opt out because that would be stupid. He's got a lot of money coming his way after the opt-out clause. He's going to take it he from the Red Sox. He might have to just to escape the city. Just <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what I've, I imagine. Like, it's it's virtually automatic. He will not opt out because there's so much money. He will not match that money as a free agent. But that doesn't mean he's not going to have, like, I don't know, maybe he'll just go off the grid, go to, like, a, a Chinese garden in the city and just, like, <laughs> sit and meditate and think is this what I need to do to myself? <laughs> yeah. Because when, no matter what, with David Price pitches down the line, if he makes the playoffs again in the future, this is going to follow him everywhere, either until he retires or until he, he does better. It's unfortunate for him that that tiebreaker game doesn't count as a playoff game because it effectively yeah. was, but it does skew everything. <laughs> it would mm-hmm. end. It would it would cut that losing streak that he has like in half or, or something like that. So not much is too bad. David Price knows that he has performed in, in big spots before, but... I would, uh, it would, if not for the like hundred plus million dollars we'd be talking about, sure would be tempting to just leave 
Boston behind because it seems like David Price will forever have to be perfect to escape criticism in Boston, which is not unique to him. It's kind of how it is for almost every player in mm-hmm. in Boston. But I mean, I don't know what what does he have left? Four years and like a hundred fourteen million or something like that. It, the specific number doesn't matter. I think that's more or less what it is. But I mean, if he could get four years and eighty million as a free agent, is it worth? <laughs> 28 million dollars just go away from boston and it's the answer is no but that doesn't mean that he's not going to at least think about it yeah so if you had told anyone that the red sox starter was going to last an inning in two-thirds you would have expected this to be more of a blowout than it ended up being since we were all talking about how bad boston's bullpen is and they kept it close until the seventh when Gary Sanchez hit his second home run of the game and should have counted for two because it was so long. Was it 479 yep. feet over the monster? I didn't think that Aaron Judge's home run earlier in that game would be topped in the same game, but it was. That's uh, The Yankees are just so big. <laughs> They're just so large. They have so many players who are just towering over everyone and throwing super hard and hitting baseballs harder than anyone. I mean, it's it's an entertaining team. Just got like Luke Voigt, who's just another giant guy added in the middle of Judge and Stanton, who are giants, and Gary Sanchez is big, and Batances is huge, and I don't know. It's just, it's kind of a, a fun, just almost superhuman sort of roster. And I was thinking, like, I wish there were more ballparks that you could hit home runs out of because I really enjoy just aesthetically the sight of a ball being hit entirely out of a ballpark. And I was trying to think because Sanchez's homer left Fenway, which is not unusual, but it left it in a part of the park where it is unusual because he he hit it pretty close to center field and it still left. How many ballparks are there where you can actually hit a ball out? Like, obviously, there's Fenway, there's Wrigley, Dodger Stadium, you can occasionally hit a ball out. I know that Stanton's hit a ball out of there, Piazza hit a ball out of there. So those are perhaps not coincidentally the oldest ballparks. You can technically homer out of all those. You can homer out of AT&T. You can homer out of PNC. And those are good because then you get the the splash landings. But there aren't many others that I can think of. You can hit it at a minute made over the tracks. Right. When, yeah, you can hit it out of minute made, I guess, when the roof is open. It doesn't happen often, but it has happened. Camden Yards, I guess you can kind of hit it out of. Like you can hit it onto Utah Street which is like between the ballpark and the factory, the warehouse, but it's kind of like part of the ballpark. Like it's close to traffic. It's like where fans are milling around and having food and stuff. So I I don't know if that technically counts as out of the ballpark. It's kind of part of the ballpark, but I don't know. I I can't think of, because most of the modern parks have like a concourse out past the outfield seats. And Mm -hmm. so it's really hard to, get it over that too so i don't know that there are many others maybe target field can you get you can, a ball out of target i don't you know you can hit it out of safeco above the left field bleachers it takes a lot but i think yeah people have done it in batting practice uh-huh yeah yeah occasionally you hear about the batting pra- like there's uh 
there have been Yankee Stadium home runs that left in batting practice, like in that little sliver where you can see the, the subway, you can see the train go by. I, I don't know that anyone has done that in a real game. No one but, wants a home run hit out of the stadium through a sliver. It's got to be over <laughs> something. You right. Know? Yes. Yeah. It's so it's such a magnificent sight. And I guess if you could do it in every ballpark, it it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be as impressive. It's rare and special when it happens. And I mean, I think in this genre of home runs, I don't think anyone can top the Glen Allen Hill homer in (laughs) 2000 that he hit not only out of Wrigley and across Waveland Avenue, but onto the rooftop of a neighboring building. That, I mean, I don't know what was coursing through Glen Allen Hill's bloodstream when he hit that ball. I think you know. (laughs) And I don't know what was in the ball, for that matter, at that point in baseball history. But just in terms of, like, sheer – that might be my favorite home run to watch ever. (laughs) I mean – not like for drama, it was a May regular season home run, but just in sheer, I mean, the power, that ball just, I, I don't, I guess the the estimate, I don't know exactly how far it, it is said to have gone, but it looks like it was just farther than any estimate. I don't know. I love that homer. <laughs> I'll link to it. If you haven't watched it lately, just revisit the Glen Allen Hill homer. There's an old home run I was at, that was hit when I was growing up. It was uh, Mark McGuire in the Kingdom against Randy Johnson. I don't have uh, mm. I don't have a video in front of me, and I didn't even get to see it because there was no MLB TV at the time. But the, at least the way that it was conveyed to me, the story is that Mark McGuire hit a ball essentially through the back wall of the Kingdom, <laughs> just like through the concrete. And like I know there's a lot more that goes into these things. Like pitch velocity doesn't really add much to fly ball distance. You know, we've it's mm-hmm. Alan Nathan we have to thank for that research, but. Like if you if you think about like the the biggest home run that ever would have been hit, you essentially think of someone like Mark McGuire making perfect contact against someone like Randy Johnson, and uh, mm-hmm. so that's one of those ones that I don't know maybe a video exists out there. With as far as Sanchez is concerned, I will say it was there's a funny sequence, and Sanchez might be a little upset with himself because in the top of the fifth inning against Ryan Brazier, Sanchez was behind yeah. and uh, he stepped out of the box, and Brazier called him. He was like, get the F back in the box. And Sanchez came up and took like a mammoth swing and struck out swinging. And then (laughs) he came back and he hit the ball out of the ballpark in the seventh (laughs) against Eduardo Rodriguez. If he could have just switched the sequence of that, I'm sure he would have been thrilled. Yes, definitely. Yeah, he did style the homer a little bit. He watched that one go, which is probably not unrelated (laughs) to being told to get back in the box. But anyway, just impressive power displays all around for the Yankees, which was the case in the wildcard game, too. Giancarlo Stanton just doesn't really look together right now. He just kind of looks like he's screwed up mechanically, but that could change at any point, and then you'd have a really intimidating lineup. So this is uh, it's a toss-up as we speak. The the first game in the series was a one-run game, and this one was more competitive than the final score makes it look. So exciting series, and we thought it was pretty even coming in, and it is even as we speak. So I don't really know what will happen here. But Chris Sale, we, we talked a lot about Chris Sale, and he got his velocity back. He you know, wasn't throwing the hardest he's ever thrown, but I think it was his highest average velocity since April, I believe, in this game. It was like 94-something. So either he was sandbagging and taking it easy during September, or he really did fix his mechanical issues, or the playoff stage amped him up. I don't know what it was, but he was good. 
And he couldn't get past recording, what, the 15th out, which is going to be a problem because he hadn't even pitched in the sixth inning since July. And I I know that the Red Sox wanted to get as much length as possible to stay out of that bullpen, but I just don't know that he can give you that at this point. But just five innings of really good pitching was enough for them in that game, barely. So he looked back to, well, close enough to his, his usual self. It's funny, the Red Sox won 108 games during the regular season, and I, as far as I can tell, the the two prevailing narratives about the series is that David Price can't pitch in the playoffs and the Red Sox have a terrible bullpen. And it's like people <laughs> just assume that the Red Sox are, are like screwed in this series and they're they're tied yeah. with the Yankees, who are also very, very good. And I, I, I just have this natural instinct to disagree with like any narrative that pops up. I don't know if it's just some sort of like instinctive contrarianism or something, but like the Red Sox don't have like a Brewers bullpen. They don't have a Yankees bullpen, but their bullpen is fine. It's like probably as good or better than four of the five bullpens in the National League. They still have Craig Kimbrell in their bullpen. Of course, they don't have one of those super bullpens like you see in the American League. But like, you know, you'd think, oh, the Indians bullpen is great. And then Andrew Miller comes out and looks like garbage when he pitches. And Mm -hmm. so the narrative, just if you hear a narrative, just to just don't, don't, don't pay attention (laughs) to it. I don't know. It's weird that the Red Sox have always been swung as some sort of like underdog against the Yankees because they are coming off like a franchise best season. But I don't know. I think the Yankees are a little bit better. I think the Yankees are more likely to win the series by a small amount. But if the Red Sox have enough pitching, they should and could be fine. And if they lose, well, the Yankees have like an absurdly good lineup. We can talk all we want about like the Yankees analytics and how forward thinking they are. But they basically just, like you said, they just got giants. They just got people <laughs> who hit the ball the hardest, and they got people who throw the ball the hardest. And they're like, look at us. We're brilliant. Like, this, this didn't take necessarily mm-hmm. that much in the way of work in player development. It turns out that at its uh, at its core, baseball uh, putting together a baseball roster is not that complicated. You just get people who hit the ball hard and, and, and throw the ball hard. But I, I do wonder. <laughs> you mentioned Giancarlo Sand, who struck out five times in the series out of uh, 10, 10 at-bats so far. And I, I kind of stopped paying attention to him during the year. But it is of, of some note that his strikeouts went backwards this season. He mm-hmm. lost all of the gains that he made last year with the Marlins. And he went back to striking out three times as often as he walked. He went back to striking out 30% of the time. Giancarlo Stanton, very fun player. Probably not exactly what the Yankees thought they were trading for. So that's just one of those things to watch. I know people gave the Marlins a lot of crap for that trade. And... It would be fun to have him still in a Marlins uniform, but I don't think that they're too upset about getting out from mm-hmm. underneath that contract because this is this has a pretty good chance of going wayward. But that's something for us to talk about maybe in the in the winter time. Yeah, I wouldn't be shocked if he recovers somewhat and and has a a pretty. I mean, he was pretty good, but I wouldn't be surprised if he has a a better offensive season somewhere in his future before the decline comes. But it's uh, it's a little scary that he went the wrong way. So. Anyway, we have uh, talked for quite a while, it turns out. <laughs> so, yeah, we did it. Yeah, wow. All right, so I guess we can end here, and uh, next time we will have more baseball to talk about. I don't know. I'm probably going to go to game four of the Yankees-Boston series, so I don't know. Maybe we'll we'll talk after that and do emails and get back up to speed and preview some championship series. We will play it by ear. But uh, we will be back to talk to you sometime soon. 
Okay, so quick PSA. It looks like Jeff and I will be doing our first of two playoff live streams this Friday, Friday evening. That'll be NLCS Game 1. So if you are a Patreon supporter at the $10 level or above, anytime before Friday, you will get a message from us with a link to that live stream. It'll just be me and Jeff and maybe some guests chatting while we watch the game and while you watch the game, taking questions from listeners in the chat room. Those are always fun. Looking forward to it. As I speak these words, the Astros have already eliminated the Indians. The Dodgers look like they're on the verge of eliminating the Braves, so nothing we said in today's episode is really all that different now. Meant to mention, by the way, I sort of screwed up the stat blast last time. I said something backwards was the listener email from Jacob about 100 lost teams defeating 100 win teams after they both got to those century marks. Just to clear up any confusion, the Orioles, of course, did it twice this year. They beat both Boston and Houston after getting to their 100th loss. The five previous times that that had happened, it was the Athletics beating the Yankees, not the other way around, in 1954, that happened twice, and then Boston beating New York in 1932, and St. Louis beating the Cubs in 1907 twice. I think I said the Browns by mistake last time, it was actually the Cardinals. Cardinals beat the Cubs twice, so those are the seven times that a 100-loss team has beaten a 100-win team. Thanks to those of you who pointed out that that came out wrong. I'm working with playoff brain combined with book brain. It is not a good combination. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Following five listeners have already done so. Ian Larson, Timothy Cullen, Ben Lennertz, Lane Maddox, and Brennan Jordan. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. I haven't seen a new review in a while. Keep them coming if you haven't left one yet. You can contact me and Jeff via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are supporting. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we will be back a little later this week. In the middle of a lonely night, got caught in the hallway light. For a minute you were getting close, I suspect I've seen a ghost. In the middle of a highway dream, got caught in the headlight beam.